This is Lewis Lapham for Lapham's Quarterly, and this is The World in Time. Lead support for this podcast has been provided by Elizabeth Lizette Prince. Additional support was provided by James J. Jimmy Coleman, Jr. Speaking today with the historian Edward Acorn about his new book, The Lincoln Miracle, Inside the Republican Convention That Changed History. Your book, Edward, is the wonderfully well-told story of the eight days in May 1860 that set the stage for Abraham Lincoln's election to the White House and with his election, the coming of the American Civil War. It is your gift for the detail of time and place of human conduct and character that finds the past living in the present, the present living in the past, with a result that your book is truly a joy to read. Perhaps you can begin by telling us what is the mood in the country in 1860. How is the feeling about slavery exciting violence everywhere in the country? Well, I, I think the, the mood in 1860 would have a, a haunting familiarity to people today. The politics uh, in the country seemed to have broken down. People were talking at each other. Uh, they were no longer listening to each other. They're talking past each other. They were increasingly using violence or looking toward violence as a way to settle their differences. So the whole political system was breaking down, and this was this was over slavery, as you, you mentioned. The South had just felt so insulted by the North's pretensions of moral superiority in criticizing slavery, and the North was feeling incre- increasingly angry at the politics in Washington and how the Southerners were bullying people, pushing people around. One Southern congressman had clubbed a Massachusetts senator nearly to death at his desk at uh, in the Senate. So these things were um, really making people uh, nervous and angry. You know, there was a long protracted fight over the selection of a House speaker, which is normally a pretty much rote action. There was a view of many in the North, especially, that Washington had become this festering swamp full of elites who didn't have any sort of connection with common people in America. So I, I this is the setting of it, which I think has a, has a frighteningly familiar uh, feel to it. All right. And the eight days in May, the convention. Now, why is it in Chicago? Well, it's kind of ironic. The Republican National Committee was considering several sites and they rejected some because they had candidates from those states and they wanted to do a somewhat neutral site. They chose a swing state and they chose Illinois, because they didn't think uh, there was a really major candidate from Illinois. And of course, Abraham Lincoln was from Illinois. They also wanted to, Chicago wanted to display that it was a really up and coming city in America. It it had just, just 30 years earlier, it had been pretty much a swamp of a, a group of uh, little houses uh, around the Chicago River. 
and it had exploded into this big city uh, that was sort of a symbol of America that uh, rising from nothing, becoming rich, powerful, very active. And by 1860, there were more rail lines connecting in Chicago than in any city in the world. So that's, and it was still kind of a small city about 112,000 people or something, but it was just really centrally located for business, and that made it uh, very energetic. How many candidates were there for the the the, uh, the nomination? They weren't actual announced candidates in those days. They were just sort of people who who floated their names out, but there were probably. 10, 10 strong candidates uh, going into that convention. And the, the superstar far and away was the New York um, Senator uh, William Seward. He was the former governor of New York. He was considered the father and progenitor of the Republican Party, the guy who nurtured it into this incredibly strong force in politics. You know, he had the money, he had the backing of a very wily political strategist named Thurlow Weed, who was part of the Albany political machine. He had just traveled overseas and had met with Queen Victoria and and Emperor Napoleon III and, and the Pope and all. And so he was really being uh, prepared to be the next president. And uh, Lincoln was considered really a, a dark horse he was from an important swing state, so people thought, well, he might be the vice presidential nominee. But going in, very few people thought he had a chance to be the, the Republican nominee. So the Lincoln miracle, I mean, the title of your book is, how does it happen that this very dark horse, Lincoln, an obscure Illinois politician, had served one term and Congress, but he had distinguished himself with the Lincoln-Douglas debates. Explain where and they took place. Yes, Stephen, Stephen Douglas was probably the most prominent Democrat in the country, and he ran for re-election in 1858. And Lincoln, uh, who, would, who had just ran, all he did was run a two-man law office, essentially, and he had, he had not... By, by the 1860 convention, he had not served in office for more than 10 years. He, but he, he took on uh, Douglas, Stephen Douglas, who got his start around the time Lincoln got his start in politics. And Lincoln had always felt, you know, uh, gee, this, this guy started when I did, and he's gone to, to national and international prominence, and I'm still basically uh, a nobody. So he took on D Douglas, and they had a series of debates that uh, were carried in na nationally in newspapers because of Douglas's fame, not because of Lincoln's. And Lincoln proved unexpectedly strong in uh, <laughs> eviscerating D Douglas's views and promoting the idea of freedom. So that, if he, if Lincoln had any fame going into this convention, it, he pretty much owed it to uh, Douglas and those debates. But even so, he, you know, as I said, he hadn't held office in, in elected office in more than a decade. 
He ran a two-man law office. He told dirty jokes, sometimes dirty jokes. He told jokes. He was not considered uh, the first-tier candidate. I mean, compare him to Seward, the governor of of the most populous state in the country. So um, Lincoln really enters that. I can't can't express it enough. How he enters this convention as a dark horse. He didn't. He was the candidates in those days didn't go to the conventions. They sort of politely stood back and let their managers do the work at the convention. And Lincoln was thinking of going to the convention. He told told a friend, "I'm I'm not enough of a." candidate to stay home, but I'm too much of a candidate to go. So he was very confused about what he should do. And this is this is how iffy this thing was going into the convention. The Democratic Party is pro-slavery, right? Well, that's that was a problem. The Democratic Party was trying to ride the fence on slavery. Uh, they were they they were pro-slavery because they needed the southern states to to win win power but the the strains between the north and the south had grown so great that a couple weeks before the republican convention that i write about the the democratic convention had split in half they couldn't decide on a presidential candidate and the southern delegates had marched out of the convention in protest of the um of the platform they developed and the Northern Democrats increasingly were realizing we can't, we can't get elected if we just go along with everything the Southern Democrats say and want to do. And the Southern Democrats didn't care. So it was, it was a leading to this uh, terrible division that presaged the division of the, the whole country. So when the, the Republicans gathered in Chicago in May, they, they effectively thought, we have a really great chance to elect the next president of the United States. And they wanted to uh, do that very carefully and choose somebody. I mean, I, I one of the things that struck me doing research on this book is these people were not trying to choose the, the greatest, most intellectual, most uh, uh, strongest person to run the country in the middle of a terrible crisis. They were concerned almost entirely with who would get us elected, who would get us the most votes, who would scare off too many votes. Uh, And they very carefully winnowed down the field because they, they wanted power, they wanted jobs, they wanted to be elected in their own states. And that's eventually how Lincoln snuck in there and, and became the nominee. It was not because he was a brilliant debater against Douglas. It was not because they even perceived his strengths. It was because in their calculations, he would uh, give them the most jobs and uh, and give them the best chance to win uh their elections in their states. The Democrats had three candidates on the ticket, right? It was, isn't that, they were that badly divided? Well, in the final race, they had two different Democratic candidates, um, Breckenridge and Doug and Stephen Douglas. And then there was a, another party 
which was sort of made up of the old Whigs the, uh, that were the party that turned sort of turned into the Republicans. But uh, they had a candidate uh, named John Bell, and their basic position was, we're not going to stir up slavery at all. We're not going to say anything about it. We're not going to do anything about it. Vote for us, and we'll support the Constitution as is. Uh, the Republicans had the view, the chief plank of the Republicans, which was something Lincoln very strongly stressed, was slavery has to stop here. It can't go into any more territories of the United States and future states. It had to stop where it was. And we have to make a statement that slavery is morally wrong, and we have to put it on a path toward its extinction. And the Democrats, the Southern Democrats, held the view, if you even prevent slaves from going into the territories, you're denying us our rights as Americans. And so it was a very, essentially that was the contentious issue uh, in the campaign, slavery. All right, well, and now that's the background. Now begin your story of the eight days. <laughs> yes, Saturday, Saturday, May eighth, May May twelfth was the May, first day. Okay. Yeah, well, I write about um, I write about a uh, magazine center centerfold in the Harper's Weekly, which was a very prominent uh, weekly newspaper, and they had a center spread of all the candidates, and there in the center, in a giant oval, is Seward. And uh, the other candidates are around them, some of the more prominent ones at top, and Lincoln's at the bottom on the, with the also-rans. So I think I kind of described that to set, set the tone for it. Lincoln's people arrive in Chicago for the convention, and they discover that uh, the, or, the campaign's so poorly organized, nobody has even booked a room for their convention headquarters, which was absolutely essential if they were going to have any chance. So a, a, a man named David Davis, who was a judge, a circuit court judge that who knew Lincoln very well because uh, the, the court in, in, in central Illinois, the court would travel from town to town, set up shop in a, in a different courthouse, which was usually a log building and uh, hold court there. So Lincoln had spent six months a year doing traveling around to these courts with this David Davis, who was a 300-pound judge. And he, Davis showed up in Chicago and dis discovered they hadn't even rented a room, and he just took charge. He's, he's, nobody appointed him, Lincoln's manager. He took charge, and he started... Uh, getting to work on uh, on uh, doing the best he could for Lincoln. Nobody, when they went in there, nobody had any idea how this thing would shake shake out. Seward's great manager Thurlow Weed came to Chicago that same day, and he uh, he was going to use his money and power to do everything he could to get Seward nominated. He shipped in. I think thousands of um, supporters of Seward to Chicago so they could march in the streets and create an impression that Seward was just inevitable. And he had a, headqu he had a headquarters in, I believe, the Richmond House Hotel. <laughs> That's right. That's but, he, you know, he's distributing cigars and, and champagne and, and whiskey, right? 
Oh, that's that's very much true. Yes, and the Lincoln people couldn't afford to do this. Of course, they they didn't have any money. So, so Seward, you know, the irony is if if we had a modern system in those days of primaries, Seward would have swept to the nomination. He had the money, he had the uh, in, institutional support, but in in a convention setting, it was possible to persuade the delegates that uh, Seward would not win. And Seward had an issue, basically his fame and his strong liberal positions uh, made him uh, a somewhat dangerous candidate to run. John Brown, the famous abolitionist John Brown, had the previous October had seized the... um, uh, the weapons at Har- Har- uh, Harper's Ferry and had planned to arm slaves in a violent uprising against whites. And this just sent shocks of terror through the South. And it created a feeling throughout the country that all this uh, talk about slavery had become too dangerous. It was going to tear the whole country in half. And Seward was the guy who was the most closely linked to speaking out against slavery. Being uh, Lincoln had said just as many strong things in opposition to slavery, but he was less famous than Seward. So these delegates started to worry, wait a minute, if we run this guy, he's going to seem too extreme. And some of the more moderate candidates that we're going to lose to uh to Douglas or to some or to the other former Whig party and so they they increasingly worried about having someone that liberal as Seward running running for president all right so the people beginning to arrive in Chicago on that 12th right which is a That's Saturday right. yeah and then the next Sunday Monday Tuesday they're still arriving yeah. Right. And and the convention itself doesn't start until when? The, the Wednesday? Wednesday? Wednesday, that's right. Right. All right. Well talk about where where is is the convention. They've they've built a special building. That's the right. Wigwam. What's the wigwam? The wigwam, yes. It's uh it was a, a a very basic sort of square building that was thrown up in only six weeks. Uh by the Republicans in Chicago because they wanted a big hall and they wanted uh, to show off Chicago to the whole country. And so they built this this very rough, raw place. They called it the Wigwam. And the ladies of Chicago came in and decorated it with uh, evergreens and bunting and so forth. But you can imagine it's uh, they, when they turn the gas lights on. It's Bruce Catton, who's a his, you know, long dead historian I greatly admire, said it must have been the most dangerous fire trap built in American history, and it probably was. They, they could fit like eleven thousand people in there, jam them in. The, it was constructed in such a way they didn't have any sort of amplification or microphones or anything, so they. It was built with a sloping ceiling so the speakers at the front of the hall could be heard by everyone in this hall. 
There's all sorts of wonderful things. They, they built a ladies' gallery so the women would have first dibs at uh, getting into the hall among the general public. And uh, men started uh, going out on the streets and grabbing any woman they could and bribing them to, to uh, come in with them so they could sit in the hall, and including uh, prostitutes on the street and washing right. women and so forth, anybody they could get. That was that was the wigwam. It was, uh, and and what it did was permit very loud screaming by uh, people in the hall, which in those days was designed to to sway the delegates, try to to make them see, oh, there's a lot of support for this person. And I'm ju- jumping ahead, but the link, one of the things the Lincoln people did was print up counterfeit tickets to get into the wigwam. And this was the advantage of having uh, the uh, convention in, in their home territory, their home field. They could gather a ton of people very cheaply. They didn't have to ship them in from the east like uh, Thurlow, Weed, and Seward had to do. So they, they printed up counterfeit tickets on the eve of the voting for president and they, they got in their Lincoln supporters. And meanwhile, the Seward supporters were out that morning marching in the streets and showing how much support they had. When they arrived at their the wigwam with their legitimate tickets, they couldn't get in. So that helped the Lincoln forces during, <laughs> during the voting for president sound louder and have uh, stronger support than they otherwise would. When does the voting start? The voting, the voting uh, starts on Friday, but one of the striking things just blows my mind at how close Lincoln came to not winning this was on Thursday Thursday evening. They had, they had spent uh, a lot of time on Thursday voting on the platform and debating uh, the Declaration of Independence, whether that should be a part of the platform. And so uh, they were all ready to vote for president Thursday evening. Seward had won a series of test votes, so it appeared very clear he would win the nomination if they started voting. And what happened was the podium announced, well, we don't have the tally sheets yet to to write down the votes, but they're coming in about five minutes. But the delegates by that time were so hungry and they just thought Seward was going to win anyways. So they adjourned till, till Friday for the vote. And during that night, the Lincoln forces worked <laughs> worked all night uh, sort of buying support, bribing uh, different delegations to support Lincoln with the promise of seats on the cabinet and other, other jobs. It was very uh, mercenary. Lincoln, of course, had said publicly that he would have nothing to do with that kind of politicking. He, he was not... Right. He, you're right. You're right. Late, Lincoln sent a uh, note to Chicago from Springfield saying, uh, make make no no bargains in my name. And David Davis, the, the judge I mentioned earlier, took one look at that and he shoved it in his pocket and said, Lincoln ain't here. <laughs> and he, he just went ahead and uh, uh, made all these deals. And Lincoln later had to uh, honor them effectively. Yes, I mean among among the candidates in the in the wigwam, I mean were several people who eventually became members of 
Lincoln's cabinet because of the deal. I mean, Sam yeah. and Chase, Simon Cameron. Yes, Cameron was the famous one. He was a, a political boss from Pennsylvania, and he was considered very, very corrupt. And uh, so somebody said during when Lincoln was president, Lincoln asked uh, Thaddeus Stevens from Pennsylvania if if Cameron was corrupt, and Stevens answered, "Well, he wouldn't steal a red hot stove." So that's basically. <laughs> Yeah. But he was he was compl- he was very corrupt and and Lincoln had to make him his first war secretary uh, because of the deals made at the wigwam. This has been a debated uh, over the years by historians just whether they made deals. But I th- I think the evidence is just overwhelming that they did make these deals, and that's you know that's politics to this day. I mean, yeah, the people. Uh, Wanting to be president, part you know, make make uh, bargains with uh, with their opponents. How are okay? So the the first ballot is on Friday, and and how does that turn out? Well, in the first ballot, it's overwhelmingly Seward, um, but uh, Lincoln comes in second with uh, and and first ballot Seward has a strong lead but he doesn't have enough to win the nomination. So Lincoln's people very were very calculated in how they did this. They wanted at least 100 votes on the first ballot, and I think they got 104. So they, they just wanted to, um, on the first ballot, to show the serious opponent to Seward was Lincoln and not somebody else. Earlier in the, in the convention, the moderate alternative to Seward, everybody thought, was going to be this guy, Edward Bates, from Missouri. He was a judge, and he was being supported by a very powerful political family, the Blairs, and also by Horace Greeley, who was the the most influential newspaper editor in the country. He edited the New York Tribune. Now, all this plays in together, but Horace Greeley had sought to be a politician in New York State. He wanted political power, not just journalistic power. And in those days, those were not kept separate. So he had gone to Weed and Seward. He had been a very close ally of Weed and Seward, and he had tried to become governor of New York, and they said, no, no, you, you can't do that. And then he tried to be lieutenant governor, and they rejected him for that. And then they made the uh, editor of the New York Times lieutenant governor. So he was very, Greeley was very upset at Seward and Weed. And he went to Chicago, he said, for the interest of the party. But I think he he had a personal grudge. And he he turned as many delegates as he could away from Seward, warned that Seward couldn't win, that Seward was too radical, and you got to support this Edward Bates guy. But Edward Bates uh, had been associated with the Know Nothing Party, which um, was opposed to immigrants. Uh, they thought immigrants were destroying America and so forth. Germans, German voters who were very important for Republicans, they were just a small percentage of voters, but they effectively could turn elections in several northern states. They had their own convention that week in Chicago, 
just to send a warning to the to the delegates at the real convention, don't you dare support this Bates guy. And that played into Lincoln's hands, too, because the Ger- German immigrants were willing to support Lincoln. They, they supported Seward more, but they were willing to support Lincoln because he wasn't associated with the Know Nothing Party. And so all this, these things lined up almost miraculously. Just, it's just, it blows my mind how all these different factors came into play to make Lincoln the most uh, reasonable candidate for them to run for president. And, and do you remember the numbers? I mean, in the first and second ballot, I mean, you had... Yeah, I have them in the book, but Bates sort of was uh, nowhere. I think Seward had around twice as many votes as Lincoln. But Lincoln back in Springfield said, if Seward doesn't get it on the first ballot, he's not going to get it. Lincoln was a really shrewd political analyst, and he knew if Seward didn't get it on the first ballot, there was too much opposition to him to win the nomination. And that's that's what happened. On the second ballot, Lincoln got a number more votes, including ones that had been promised to Seward. And they were just aghast. They couldn't believe it uh, sitting there. You know, everybody went to bed Thursday night thinking Seward had this nomination in the bag. And when the voting actually took place, it was a... It was a horror to to the Seward forces. They just couldn't believe it. And so I, you know, the book lays this all out bit by bit. I hope it doesn't sound too confusing, but it's... No, it's not. What's wonderful about the book is it's a very straightforward narrative. Yes. you You can read it almost like a thriller, right? Yes, I try to I try to make it step by step by step, right. and I try not to overwhelm the reader with any uh, too much politics in any one of those steps. But they all add up to this incredible yeah. result. And the the uh, he's finally Lincoln's nominated on the third ballot. That's right. Yeah, is that also on the Friday? That's on Friday, and these all the, this all happened Friday morning, and. Uh, it took until um, late afternoon for the wires to to get the information to Washington. It was quicker getting it, it to Springfield. And also I write about poor Seward at his house in Auburn, New York, uh, and he's out in the garden uh, waiting for the waiting to hear that he's been nominated. All week his friends have been selling it, sending him telegrams. It's he, it's you're you're going to be nominated. Everything's going great. Don't worry about anything. And then he gets uh, a telegram out in the garden that Lincoln's been nominated on the third ballot. And uh, you can imagine. <laughs> How soon after Lincoln is nominated does the South begin to secede? They waited until after the election. It became very clear that Lincoln was going to win early. It's around October. There were elections in um, some states early. There were uh, October elections in a couple states for other offices, not president. And those clearly signaled that the Republicans were going to win. And at that point, Stephen Douglas, this was, I think, the greatest thing he ever did. He went south. 
he 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 actually camp the candidates didn't campaign in those days they stayed at home on their front porch and uh let others do the campaigning for them it was considered undignified for them to campaign but Douglas went south and campaigned and he he tried to persuade people in the south don't destroy the union please keep, maintain the union and he he argued that the union should be maintained which was a very gutsy thing to do in october and november 1860 and then after lincoln's election the very quickly the southern states began seceding uh starting with uh south carolina in december and by the time Lincoln was nominated, a confederacy had been formed and a president uh, selected for the for the Confederate states. So Lincoln effectively had no moment of his presidency without a, a dealing with a confederate confederacy. Well, in writing this book, what most surprised you? I, I think I, I talked about this a little earlier. What surprised me was how little attention they gave to how good a president this their nominee would be. I mean, it was all about who would put mo- the most Republicans in office. And that's what we're here to do, yeah. and we'll we'll deal with uh, whoever is president later. But the the miracle is they didn't understand what they nominated. I mean, they thought this guy, you know, he was kind of a character. He was, he told funny jokes. He was, he looked funny. He was tall. He was, he was a rail splitter. He had been born in a log cabin. He wasn't really educated, formally educated. And all these things made him a very strange candidate, but they, they knew all that, but they didn't know what a brilliant wordsmith he was, what a brilliant political tactician he was. And the people who knew that were in Illinois, and they were the people who were so loyal to him and made all the difference in Chicago. They worked day and night. They barely slept three hours that week pushing this guy and saying, you can trust him. He's going to be a great president. And that's that made all the difference in the world. Well, I just want to tell you it's a wonderful story, and, and uh, I'm glad you wrote the book, and I'm glad I had the chance to read it. And thank you, Edward Acorn, for talking with us today about your new book, The Lincoln Miracle, Inside the Republican Convention That Changed History. Lewis, thank you so much. Lapham's Quarterly brings voices from the past up to the microphone of the present. Save more than 30% off the cover price and subscribe today for only $49. Visit laphamsquarterly.org slash podcast for more details.